Great job, band. You guys lead us really well every week. I'm thankful for you. All right, church, we're going to be in Ephesians 2 this week. So go ahead and turn there. If get your Bible with you, if you don't, I invite you to take one out of the uh, back of the pew in front of you. We'll be on page 976. This is week two in our spring-summer series, studying the gospel, studying Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Let's go ahead and read those 10 verses. We'll pray and we'll, and we'll get started. Paul says in verse 1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Father, we are grateful for the time we have together this morning. Grateful for the, the chance to gather with brothers and sisters and sing to you to study the scriptures together. Pray that you would be greatly glorified in this time and we ask that as a gift of your mercy that you would put these glorious truths that we just read deep into our bones. That it would be a part of us. That we would know who we are in you above all things. Thank you for loving us, Jesus. We love you. Amen. Last week in teaching verse 1, Matt joked about being Debbie Downer. The whole, the whole sermon was about you're dead in your trespasses and sins. Well, this morning we're going to continue to let the good times roll because we're going to see that not only are we dead in our trespasses and sins that uh, we're actually enslaved as well. So here, here's what we do with this. We need to be reminded that you have to understand the badness of the bad news before you can comprehend the goodness of the good news. Like, like a pitch black sky is the backdrop for seeing the brilliance of stars shining in the sky. Okay, so we're going to understand what it means to have a better understanding of the, the blackness of the sky. Because we all tend to get nostalgic and think about the past in the best way possible. Holly and I both recently um, have gotten over a really serious medical um, illness. It's what doctors call chronic 
infant amnesia. Okay, and if you have kids, you know what this is about, where you get out of diaper stage. You get to the point where your kids are sleeping through the night, and you forget that those first six to eight months are hell on earth. You forget about it. All you remember of those days are the, the, the sweet things, the cute things that, that your baby did. Maddie was almost five years old when Bennett came. And man, infant amnesia hit us hard. So this letter, Paul is writing to the Christian church in Ephesus, and he's saying, the, the past, it's, it wasn't all roses for you. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. And we'll see this morning in verse 2 that, that you were, Christian, you once were enslaved. So let's look again at verse 2. Paul says uh, in verse 1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, picking up in verse 2, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. There are Four distinct phrases in this verse that I want to walk us through. He starts, In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. These ideas are connected. They build upon each other. And he starts with, In which you once walked. What What a strange kind of death this is. You were dead, and yet you continue to walk. Now, the, the word walk here is used to describe a particular kind of living, the way you live. And, and the principle behind this is you, you live out in practice who you are in identity. Okay? You, you live out who you are. And when Paul says that you were dead, therefore you, you lived as dead men. You, you walked. You you functioned as those that, were, that are dead in sin. And without Christ, that's how we all once lived. But here he says, you once lived this way, so he's drawing a clear contrast to their pre-Christian standing to where they are now in Christ. He did the same thing in Colossians 1. He said, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. It's important for us to remember as Christians to to remember where we were, to remember that, that we once were great sinners actively rebelling against God and we have been loved and rescued by a great Savior. Now, Paul is going to begin to talk about how they walk. Okay, Connor's going to put a, a slide up of how I think these phrases are connected together. Now, there is a terrible memories of, of high school English where you have to diagram a sentence. I'm going to try to make it really clear about how these connect together. He says, you once walked following the course of this world. This is the way that you once walked. You walked following the course of the world. Now, you need to know that there's no such thing as spiritually neutral. There's no moral neutrality. You're either actively in rebellion against God, or you're actively submitting under His authority. 
There's, there's no middle ground. And this is the same way with the course of this world. The world is moving, it has a course, and it's an enslaving course. The irreligious often will mock Christians by saying, you have all these rules and all these laws and you, you have to do all these things and you can't do all these things. And they boast in their own freedom, but, but their freedom is, is just an illusion. They're like a leaf that has fallen into a river. That leaf has no freedom to go and do as it pleases. It simply goes where the river takes it. And that's the state of those that are apart from Christ, how we once lived. We had no freedom. We, we simply followed the course of this world. This past week, all of our small groups studied Romans 1, 18 to 32, as, as, a, as a way to understand what the world is doing. What is this course of the world? And people will often talk about how humanity is getting better. But Paul in Romans 1 is quite clear that it's, it's de-evolutionary, that we spiral further and further away from God's intent for mankind, that we actually become less human as we exchange the truth of God for a lie and as we continue to turn away from Him. The course of this world doesn't make us better. It doesn't take us closer to God, but it, it's in opposition. It's running away from God. Now, a literal translation of, of the phrase, the course of this world, is according to the age of this world. Paul's already used the word age in chapter 1, verse 21, and talking about the vastness of Christ's work. He says, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. In the Jewish mind, this two-age scheme is really important. They would talk about the, the injustice and the suffering and the sin in this world that will one day all be made right in the age to come. This age is, is frustrating and there's suffering, but in the age to come, all wrongs will be made right, will be face to face with our, our Savior. Now the new age has, has already dawned in Christ, but it's not yet fully realized. And Paul is clear that this age, the age of this world, has an evil course and it takes us away from Christ. And so we're enslaved to following the course of the world. Secondly, he says, not only you walked following the course of the world, but you also once walked following the prince of the power of the air. This is a, a second hostile influence over us. This is a personal evil. Paul is, is speaking of, of Satan. He's speaking of the devil. In many ways that the biblical authors refer to him as our adversary, our enemy. Now, I realize that it's, it's not fashionable in this day to speak about the devil. The devil has, um, seems to be two, they're polar, uh, two different polar approaches to, to understanding the devil. There's one camp within Christendom that they make a big deal about Satan. He is behind everything. If your car breaks down, it's because the devil did it. If you fall into sin, it's, it's because the devil made you sin. He's behind every bush and, and everything. He's behind all that. 
Now, I will presume that, that most of you don't think of the devil and don't function in that way. You're probably more like me, and you probably are more of the opinion um, that it's almost something of a fiction character, that he's this pointy-eared and he's got a red pitchfork and he's in, the, in a cartoon, or maybe he's in the poltergeist kind of movies where he's just uh, to scare us, to entertain us. But here, Paul is clear that the devil is very much real. He's very much real. The text says that he's the prince of the powers of the air. The air is in, is in reference to everything between the earth below and the heavens above. Namely, where we live, the air we breathe. This is the air. Okay? You ever seen the, the movie the, the Patriot? He's talking to his sons and daughters about where battles are going to take place. And they're, they're saying, well, Daddy, aren't they going to take place on some far-removed battlefield? He, say, he says, no, the, the battles are going to take place here, in our fields, in our homes, through here. And that's, that's the same truth of what we face. There's spiritual realities that, it's, that this is the air we breathe. Paul says that, that he's the ruler of the powers of the air. I think this is in, in reference to what he'll say later in chapter 6. He says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So these demonic forces are, are given four descriptors. And Paul says that behind all that, Satan is the ruler of them. He's the ruler of the powers of the air. So we walked following the course of this world. We walked following the prince of the power of the air. And further, we, we walk now following the, the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience. Paul called Satan the god of this age. Jesus called him the ruler of this world. And he is responsible for establishing the active spirit of rebellion against God and his word. Theologian Boyce says, um, in talking about the norm of this world, the spirit of this age, is, he says, this is how the devil enslaves men and women. It's not to say that he is personally present. He is only one creature and can only be present in one place at one time. It is rather through the evil spirit or outlook present in the world that he rules us. The text says that the spirit is now at work. This is a corruption and a perversion of the way that God works. If you look back at Ephesians 1, 11, Paul says that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. In Ephesians 1, 19 and 20, Paul prays that we would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. This work that Satan does is, is not work to raise us up and seat us with Christ, but it's, it's work to deceive us and destroy us. It's to tear us down by conforming us to the world. That's his agenda. 
John 10, 10. The thief does not come except to steal, kill, and destroy. That's, that's all he does. Another theologian, in commenting on Satan's work here, he says, the word work designates the Spirit's evil supernatural activity whereby he exercises a powerful, compelling influence over the lives of men and women. Indeed, so effective is his present evil working that Paul can refer to his victims as sons of disobedience. That is, men and women whose lives are characterized by disobedience. They are rebels against the authority of God who prefer to answer the promptings of the arch enemy. Such men and women have not responded in gratitude or praise to the evidences of God's eternal power and divinity which he has provided in creation. They reject the gospel and disregard his will. All who are outside of Christ live in a kingdom called the tyranny of darkness in which the evil one holds sway. So how, how does he do this? How does he work? I'm going to give you three ways that I think Satan is active in his, in his working. The first one is, it, is exclusively an attack on unbelievers. The first work he does is he blinds. He blinds the eyes of unbelievers. Satan was a created being, an angel whose function was to give glory to God, and yet he wanted to keep the glory for himself, and that's his same agenda today. He cannot compare to the greatness of God. He has no glory in comparison to God, and yet he wants to deceive those that don't have faith. He wants to blind them to keep them from seeing God's infinite glory. Listen to Paul in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the lowercase g, God of this world, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He has doubly blinded unbelievers, both They've, they've been made blind both to their need for salvation. They have no sense of their own sin. And they're also blind to the beauty of the gospel. Blind eyes see no sweetness in Christ's offer for mercy. And, and blind eyes can't see the good news that Jesus is the Lamb of God. So a question for you. How, how do you see Jesus? How do you see him? Do you see him as kind and gracious and long-suffering towards you? Or do you see him as your Sunday activity? Do you see him as being worthy of giving control of your life to him? Or do you see him as someone that you learned about as a little kid? Do you see him and love him for the way he has loved you? Or are you indifferent towards him? How do you see him? 
Has God given you eyes to see? Has He spoken in your heart? Let light shine. Only God, the Holy Spirit, can give sight to blind eyes. The way He has chosen to give sight is by speaking the truth of the gospel. And I say speak instead of preach intentionally. Consider Mark 4. A sower went out to sow. A preacher went out to preach. A college student went out to testify to roommates. Uh, uh, an employee went to share Christ over lunch. A mom went to share Christ with their children. Uh, a golfer went to share Christ with his foursome on the golf course. And verse 14 says, gives, a, gives understanding of, of Satan's agenda. He says, and, there, and these are the ones along the path where the w- word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that's sown in him, sown in them. This is Satan's agenda. He wants to blind eyes and snatch the word away. So what, what do we do with that? We don't give up praying. We don't give up begging God to give sight to blind eyes. For family members, for friends, for those that God has put around you that you know that they, they don't see the majesty of Christ. Don't stop praying. And don't stop sharing about how God has changed your life. Don't, talk, don't stop sharing about how you see Jesus as kind and gracious and merciful and loving ever faithful. Don't give up inviting them to Jesus. I pray that that eyes are opened to Jesus in this age. Because in this age, Jesus comes to us low and humble like a lamb. But in the age to come, he's going to be a lion. And There will be justice. Wrongs will be made right. Sinners will be punished forever. And so this is why in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, I implore you, I beg you, be reconciled to God. Don't grow weary in praying for those around you. Don't don't stop talking about how good Jesus is. First, he blinds unbelievers. The second way that he works is, this is among believers and unbelievers alike, he tempts to sin. He tempts us to sin. He desires to draw the soul to sin. Thomas Brooks, a Puritan author, wrote this amazing little book, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. I strongly encourage you to check that out. He says, He says, Satan will deceive you to sin by presenting the bait and hiding the hook. He'll present the golden cup and hide the poison. He'll present the sweet, the pleasure, and the profit that may flow in upon the soul by yielding to sin and by hiding from the soul the wrath and misery that that will certainly follow the committing of sin. Here's the bait, the sweet, the pleasure, the profit, but oh, but he hides the hook the shame, the wrath, and the loss that would certainly follow. Jesus himself knows what it's like to be tempted by Satan. In Matthew 4, he's led by the Spirit out into the wilderness to be tempted. 
Three times he's, he's tempted, and each time he, he counters with the truth of the Scripture. So we can believe Hebrews 4, where the author says that we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. We can trust 2 Peter who says that, that God is able to rescue the godly. He can do it because Jesus has done it. We have a strong rescuer on our side. There's power in 1 Corinthians 10, 31. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Let's just stop there for a second. No, there's, there's no utterly unique temptation to you. Every week, meeting with the, the men in my small group, they're sharing their struggles, sharing temptations to sin. I don't know that I've ever thought, I cannot relate to that temptation at all. Like I, ha- I don't even have categories for understanding that. Church, there are brothers and sisters around you that they're weak just like you. And it's okay to say, I'm feeling tempted in this way. And they're going to get it because they're tempted in the same ways. So don't be a fool and live on an island out by yourself. When you're coming under attack, talk about it with brothers and sisters. Because of the way this verse ends, God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You're going to be able to endure it because Jesus is our faithful high priest and he's put brothers and sisters around you. So what, what do we do? To, how do we fight this, this kind of temptation? We, we have to cling to the truth. Cling to the truth. We have to keep a great distance from sin. We, we can't be like teenagers and, and having the sex talk. Well, well, how far is too far? It's a broken question. It's no good. You don't want to get as close to sin as you can without actually sinning. None of us are strong enough to do that. We have to remember that sin is, is only bittersweet. There's this allure of sin that it's going to make you happy and satisfied and fulfilled. But in the end, you feel broken, empty, and lied to. None, no Christian has ever said, I'm so glad I did that. There's only regret on the other side. He blinds. He tempts, and thirdly, a way that he uniquely attacks believers is that he reminds. He reminds. Now, um, we know that, that we will never be the same after Christ has opened our eyes. We see him as he is, and we respond in faith. In that moment, Paul says, you're a new creature. Your identity is forever changed. You're forever in God's right hand. A strong right hand that that no one can take you out of, not even yourself. You're forever in this hand. And so Satan's going to begin to attack you in a way that that he would never attack an unbeliever. He's going to begin, instead of hiding sin, he's going to get a big yellow highlighter and put the spotlight on your sin. He's going to bring to mind old sin. He's going to bring to mind frequent sin and ask, how can you even say you're a Christian? How can you say you're in Christ because all the stuff you have done, all the the ways you continue to fall. How can you say that you're a Christian? This morning, if you are in Christ, you are eternally secure. Eternally secure. You will never experience the realities of hell. 
but Satan wants you to feel it now. You'll never go there, you'll never know it firsthand, but Satan wants you to feel it. He wants you to be so focused on the disease that you lose sight of the remedy. The only way to fight this kind of attack is, is with the truth. This is why we've got a, a stack of little laminated cards, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. We want you to memorize this. We want you to get this gospel truth deep into your bones where we become fluent in the gospel. We know what our hope is. So that when the enemy accuses, we don't deny because we know he's right, but we say, no, it's done. It's done. Because we know the truth of the song, we, the, the great hymn we sang a couple weeks ago, it is well. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but what? But the whole. All of it. It's nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. This is amazing. Again, Thomas Brooks says, The law cannot condemn a believer, for Christ has fulfilled it for him. Divine justice cannot condemn him, for that Christ has satisfied. His sins cannot condemn him, for they in the blood of Christ are pardoned, and his own conscience, even upon righteous grounds, cannot condemn him because Christ, he is greater than his conscience, has acquitted him. So Christian, who's left to accuse you? Who's left? No one. There's therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ. So when those accusations come, you say Christ is greater. You say he's nailed it to the cross. I, I bear it no more. What I have on me now is, is his burden and it's light and it's easy. He's got, he's got all my sin. He bore that in his body. Two very simple applications, and we'll be done this morning. First, know, remember, dwell on the truth that Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater. First John 4, he says, He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Jesus is stronger than Satan. He's not frustrated by Satan. He's not usurped by him in any way. We, we may be tempted to think of this battle between um, good and evil, God and, and Satan, like, like every Rocky movie, okay? Where Rocky Balboa, he's getting pummeled for 14 rounds, and then in some miraculous way in the 15th and final round, he knocks out the enemy. No, it's not like that at all. When the light comes on, the darkness flees. It's done. And this is the kind of relationship that Jesus has, his authority over Satan. Jesus is greater, and the second truth I want you to, to know is that Satan's outcome is set. His outcome is set. In this age, God has given Satan a long leash. But in the age to come, a day that's coming, he's going to jerk that leash back and he's going to throw him in the lake of fire. He knows that he's a defeated foe and he wants to take as many down with him as he can. But we have the truth of the gospel. 
We have Christ's righteousness as a breastplate to protect us from these empty accusations. And the only way that we're able to stand against these is by knowing and believing the truth. God is good. He is merciful. He's rich in mercy. And he has loved us in his son. Let's pray and thank him for this. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful to be your sons and daughters. To be loved, not just once, but for all of eternity. Thank you, Jesus, that there's not even a contest of authority, that you are far greater. You who, who are in us is far greater than, than he who's in the world. Give us eyes to see and continually see the glory of the gospel in the face of Christ. To believe it in our bones that he is who he says he is and did what he said he did. And I pray even this morning that uh, as an exercise of your spiritual authority that, that you would birth faith in hearts. Not just in this room, but in in churches all over the city, in our nation, that as an exercise of your might, that you would remove scales from eyes, that you would give sight to the blind, that Christ in his glory and his majesty would be seen, that the bonds of sin would be broken. Pray that you would have your way, Jesus. Amen.